Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Before we start this episode, just thanks to our sponsor, Panacea Financial. They are banking for doctors by doctors. You can learn more at panaceafinancial.com slash ITB. And here is a little excerpt from an interview I did with their co-founder and chief strategy officer, practicing physician, Dr. Ned Palmer. Tell me why it's unique. Convince me to open an account, Dr. Palmer. I'll do my best, Dr. Beeman. So here goes. Uh, Look, every bank has a checking account, but not every bank has a checking account that was designed for medical students. And medicine demands several things of us. One, it demands you go through a training program where you're not going to make much money. The other thing that it demands is that you're not going to have a lot of free time. And then lastly, most people are forced to move either for residency, for fellowship, or for their job, uh, for the, for their job as an attending. Banks aren't designed around this. The traditional banks and traditional checking accounts aren't designed around this. Panacea Financials is. We will reimburse ATM fees across all 50 states because we know you might have to move. We're going to be there with you throughout your career. And what we want for our medical students is we want to get to know you as early as possible. When you bank with Panacea Financial, you'll get your very own primary care banker. Now, this is a private banker who learns about what you're doing, where you're going, and what your financial goals are. Now, this this is a trusted partner that will work with you over your career. And the best possible time to start that relationship is as a med student. They'll be there with you and help you get ready for your transition to residency, work with you on the decision to go into fellowship. And then when you become an attending, they're still there with you, helping you along the way meet your financial goals. Panacea Financial, banking for doctors, by doctors. That's not just sloganeering, it's a mission. Help them build something that helps our own community in ways no one else has or really could by joining the Panacea Financial community. Sign up for a checking or savings account today at panaceafinancial.com slash ITB. Panacea Financial, a division of Sonabank, member FDIC. Well, welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. This is another episode in our health system science series brought to you by the American Medical Association with some help from Elsevier and some help from other learned people in this world of medicine, uh, medical education. Today, we have Dr. Rachel Salas, um, who is an associate professor of neurology. Um, and the Director of Interprofessional Education and Interprofession Clinical Practice at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, joined today by the Neurology Osler Apprentice, parentheses in your LinkedIn, it says, Neurology Teaching Assistant, Medical Education Research Assistant, tween year, fourth year working on her MPH, Corey Rodriguez. Mm -hmm. So welcome, both of you. Thanks for taking the time. Today, we're going to discuss a project you've worked on together and how it bears on uh, one of the uh, domains of of health system science, uh, namely healthcare technology and informatics, which are kind of grouped together in this uh, review book that that Elsevier published. Um, But First up, a little more on the intro. So I like to ask people, and we'll start with uh, 
the learner who is the most important person to our podcast and to the future of healthcare. Um, no offense, Dr. Salas. Corey, what are you most proud of? What is, who are you besides the things you've done, either professionally or personally? What are you most proud of? I think the thing that I'm most proud of is my interest in learning new things and integrating myself into different teams. I can wear a lot of different hats, and that's something that I've always liked about myself. Um, in this particular team, the Osler Apprentice team, we have a lot of different learners working together, and it's been a lot of fun um, working on the team, learning from different mentors, learning how to become a, a medical educator. At the same time, now kind of switching the hat into public health, that's a new realm that I'm kind of in, investigating and I'm very much enjoying. I'm also doing a little bit of work in advocacy and learning more about policy. Uh, and I've also done some projects in service learning. So just being able to work with these many different teams has been really interesting and trying to think of myself a little bit as an integrator um, for, the, for the future just seems like something that is very exciting for me. Um, it's something that I am very proud of. Awesome. And being at Hopkins, uh, do you have a favorite, favorite uh, Osler quote? Just curious. Favorite Osler quote? I have a, a big book of Osler quotes, but I don't have them memorized. <laughs> they're all good. Yes, they're all fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, same question to you, Dr. Sauce. What's, uh, uh, what are you most proud of as far as your professional or personal accomplishments? Uh, I think I'm most proud of you know, being able to kind of balance everything the best that I can. You know, I, I'm the mom of two boys. I am very close to my siblings and my friends and, you know, just finding balance not only for myself, but also with my family and, and kind of trying to, you know, make my mark in the world and, and, and be there for not only my colleagues, my colleagues and my patients, but also for my students. You know, I really want to be a part of their journey and support them to be whoever they want to be and who, you know, and, and to provide, you know, just some guidance and some experience that I've had so that they can truly be the leaders and the next generation of clinicians, you know, to provide the best possible care. So balance, that's, that's, that's the key, and that's what I'm most proud of. Well, that's awesome. My my contention is that some of this uh, health system science learning um, will help doctors reclaim kind of the dignity of our profession and the primacy of the art of medicine, which in turn I think will have the effect of of leading a cultural change within healthcare. Uh, such that we are able to achieve more balance and the primary driving force is not going to be churning through 40, 50 patients a day and without addressing, you know, the, the big picture of their lives and something beyond just, you know, applied biology and the, you know, quote, biological or medical good. So um, that's awesome. Yes, balance is important to us on this podcast. It's taken me still learning, uh, but it's taken me a while to kind of put that at, at pride of place, but necessary uh, for sure. Well, like we like to do at the beginning of our shows, um, we're going to take a question, a practice question, because health system science is an NBME examination that uh, more and more medical uh, schools will be requiring. And as a reminder, it's like roughly uh, 10% of the USMLE licensure exams are um, going to be concerning things related to health system science. So it's not fluff, uh, in other words. Um, and people know that, and I, I guess you guys don't know that, but my background's in philosophy and bioethics, so it's, this is actually like my favorite sort of aspect of medicine. 
the bare minimum science that I have to get by. I'd rather do poetry and literature and, and think through complex um, ethical things. At any rate, we have from the NBME's content outline a question here. So, a senior medical student is working on a quality improvement project with her advisor, which is very relevant to today's discussion. <laughs> the student treated a patient with diabetes who required foot amputation. The patient had documented neuropathy and was evaluated as an outpatient four times in one year, but no foot examinations were documented during these visits. The student theorized that providing a reminder to conduct foot examinations through the EHR, the electronic health record, would increase the number of documented foot examinations. She conducted a structured chart review of patients with diabetes as a baseline. She worked with the EHR technical team to enable pop-up reminders regarding the need for annual foot examinations in patients with diabetes. And our interrogative here is according to the Plan, Do, Study, Act paradigm, which of the following is the most appropriate subsequent action? So there's a lot to kind of pick apart here, but I think in, in general, kind of the um, pertinent points that, that are worth noting is, you know, you have this problem uh, uh, that's catalyzed by a patient having, you know, a unfortunate outcome that could have probably been avoided, namely, you know, a foot amputation um, by something that, that, that would be relatively easy, a foot examination, um, and how to get clinicians to remember to do that. And so how do we implement a, a structure that will prevent an outcome like this in the future, hence which of the following is the most appropriate subsequent action? And the answer choices here are a little bit complex, but first up we have A, follow the patients with diabetes for one year to ensure a significant number of charts are reviewed. B, for the next 50 patients with diabetes, measure the proportion that have documented foot examinations performed. C, organize a lecture about appropriate diabetic foot care for residents in addition to the reminders. Uh, so organize a lecture about appropriate diabetic foot care for residents in addition to the reminders. D, present the results of the initial chart review to hospital leadership. Or E, repeat the chart review every six months until no further improvement is noted. So it's a lot there. Um, I don't know if it's appropriate, but I might just put you on the, the spot someday, Dr. Rodriguez. Um, what, did you take step two yet? Not yet. Not yet? Okay. But I'm very happy to answer your question. All right, perfect. Go for it. What, how do we think through this? Um, so for this particular question, we see that there's a student working on a quality improvement project, and we're taking a look at these particular steps, plan, do, study, act. So currently the student has already planned her intervention. She's already theorized that providing a reminder through the EHR is going to increase the number of documented foot examinations. Um, so she's currently implementing this. So she worked with the technical team to enable the pop-up reminders um, to be integrated into the EHR. And now the next part is going to be studying. They need to see what uh, ended up resulting from this intervention. Uh, and for that reason, the answer choice B best fits where you're taking a look at the next 50 patients 
and taking a look at the proportion that have documented foot examinations performed, since this is directly reflecting her theory, which is that her hypothesis, which is that this intervention would increase the number of documented foot examinations. Um, the rest of the answer choices um, following patients uh, with diabetes for one year to ensure that a significant number of charts are reviewed uh, isn't directly taking a look at her hypothesis. Uh, organizing a lecture for residents is something that can happen later on, potentially in the ACT aspect, um, if you want to change uh, the culture uh, of the hospital. Um, taking a look at D, present the results of the initial chart review to hospital leadership. That's something that happens after you after the study step. And E, repeat the chart review every six months until no further improvement is noted. This does not really have a, a direct um, reflection, on, once again, on her hypothesis about the increased number of documented foot examinations. So for that reason, I would select choice B, which is most directly addressing that question. The single best answer. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Yep, you're correct. And I know that because I looked at the answer key. Um, <laughs> so is is this part of um, uh, like predictive analytics, um, her um, hypothesis and looking at this, um, you know, this implementing the pop-up uh, reminder to see if it increases the number of um, documented foot examinations, which I assume are a proxy measure for actual foot examinations. In regards to predictive analytics, you're taking a look at past trends and then using that to predict future trends. I'm not entirely sure if this falls within that realm. I know this is a quality improvement project where you're taking a look at some prior data to see if there's a difference with the intervention that you're conducting to see if there is an improvement in regards to the food examinations. I'm not sure if that falls under predictive analytics, but uh, could be. <laughs> yeah, I tried. <laughs> Maybe that's not the best. Uh, uh, I was trying to um, ask, ask something in a way that was sort of leading to um, discuss more and more, but mm -hmm. perhaps it would be just better to get into the project that you guys worked on. <laughs> and I don't know who would want to kind of take that, but um, you guys, in the wake of COVID-19, um, the neurology education team got together some senior medical students like yourself, Corey, and um, educators like yourself, Dr. Salas, and designed a two-week virtual elective called Virtual Patient Rounds in Neurology. What's that about? Well, thanks. I'd like to kick it off, and then I'll let Corey get into the specifics. But basically, as, as most medical schools um, got hit with the pandemic, uh, we stopped clerkships for a little while. And during that time, I mean, as a clerkship director, you know, we're just kind of wondering, like, how and when are we going to restart? And obviously, telehealth is going to be an important feature here. We've never done this in our clerkship. How are we going to do that? And and so we quickly rolled up our sleeves. Um, we had the problem there right in front of us. And we said, why don't we come up with this elective that we can do at a small, on a smaller scale? And what we will do is use our experience from that elective to inform us when we restart the clerkship. So we will kind of be ahead of the game, you know, um, in many ways. And, and that was kind of my reasoning. And luckily for us, we had uh, the Osler Apprentice uh, Program, which is a, a program that we've been doing for a few years now. And the students in that program were more than happy to not only roll up their sleeves and get involved, but to lead. And I'll let Corey take it from there to share what, what we did. 
the COVID-19 pandemic necessitated the creation of an alternative to in-person clerkships and electives. Um, so very quickly after the cancellation, our team got together and started having regular meetings in order to start planning for this uh, virtual elective. And we ended up designing a two-week uh, two virtual elective titled the Virtual Patient Rounds in Urology. It ended up being offered twice, once in April, once in May. And what we wanted to achieve with this particular elective is offering students a way to learn telemedicine through the means um, of in telemedicine, a virtual hands-on way, <laughs> um, while off also like telemedicineception. <laughs> yeah, uh, while well, also providing a neurology lecture series in a in a more broad manner, since clerkships were canceled all over the the country, all over the world. So. What we ended up having was a section of virtual neurology rounds that were offered to our Hopkins students. We had 14 medical students that ended up taking um, both uh, these courses. Um, and in, within these virtual neurology uh, rounds, we had smaller teams composed of two to three medical students, one Osler apprentice who was supposed to serve as a peer mentor, um, and one faculty member. And their work was uh, purely over telemedicine. They would round together twice in a week and they would contact patients either by Zoom or by telephone. Another aspect of the course was the JH NeuroChats, which was a neurology lecture series where there was a one hour um, semi-interactive lecture where we had invited speakers from all over the nation, um, all over the world. Um, and these professors would be leaders in their field and they would give their lecture while at the same time Osler apprentices and other faculty members could monitor the chat and answer any questions that students were having in real time or provide additional information to supplement what the presenting professor would be saying. Yeah, so this is very interesting because I think this highlights the importance of some of these health system science topics, um, which not only uh, you know can be considered as as it said the third pillar of medical education, but also filling in a bunch of gaps that like you just don't learn as a med student, and half the time people just don't learn in graduate medical education either. So, so you had this. Um, could it be said a, a really introduction to telemedicine in general? Mm -hmm. So walk me through that because is it just as simple as like loading up Zoom and being like, what brings you onto Zoom today? This was particularly interesting for me since I hadn't had any um, telemedicine experience before this and kind of being thrown into it and having Dr. Salas be uh, happy enough to give us very a lot of autonomy and kind of exploring this new space that we were developing now was very interesting. And the first thing that we were kind of taking a look at was translating the neuro exam into a telemedicine setting, which was a bit challenging. And we definitely had to, to meet a lot to discuss the different aspects and exactly how we could do the test, considering the limitations that you wouldn't exactly be able to use any of your tools like a reflex hammer on a patient you'd you'd have to just so you can't like we're just going to do audio for this but i couldn't like touch my nose and like try to touch the camera is that well that that was definitely something to to um 
consider it. And we were thinking about how we could direct a patient to maybe touch their nose and touch corners of their okay. of their computer, have somebody at home potentially come and uh, help them with the exam. And uh, while at the same time, considering patient safety and see what what is within the ability of a patient to do just through guided instructions and some aspects might be a bit complicated to describe to a patient while at the same time making sure that they're safe during the whole exam. Um, so that was something that we explored together. It's it's not as easy as just right turning on the camera and just kind of trying to just describe everything. <laughs> but it took a lot of careful planning. Yeah. So uh I guess either of you, t- tell me what does that look like, translating the neuro exam? Because at this point, uh, when I see OB patients, my neuro exam is like reflexes and like, okay, this person doesn't have the signs of preeclampsia. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. I do a little bit more than that. I, I feel self-conscious now that there's a neurologist here. <laughs> but what's it look like, translating the neuro, neuro exam into a telemedicine framework? So I'll, I'll start. Um, I would say it's it's a bit challenging. Lucky for me, and I'm going to do a shout out for my alma mater, uh, the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, where I did my med school and uh, residency. We I was exposed to telemedicine from the get-go in year one hmm. and went all the way, even my chief year was running a telemedicine clinic before coming to Hopkins. And so I think that exposure and it, you know, just even being in that allowed me the confidence to really step into um, a leadership role and a mentorship role for our team and and subsequently beyond that actually to really just say you know what we can do this there are a lot of maneuvers that we can do whether it's virtually or in person when it comes to the neuro exam you know some of them are actually the same um, other examination maneuvers, like when you're measuring uh, strength or reflexes, are going to be a little bit more difficult. But what's the other information that now we can get? Yes. For instance, you know, I'm a sleep neurologist, and when I'm doing my clinic, which has completely been telemedicine since the pandemic hit, I have insight to my patients' environments, sometimes even their bedroom. So there's more information to be gathered. Whereas some information we've in some ways kind of lost, but there's still ways to do it. For instance, if you want to do a, um, a reflex maneuver, many times family members are there and can, you know, do some reflexes for you with some coaching, um, depending on who the patient is. So this kind of allowed, these electives allowed us, um, for lack of a better word, a little bit of a playing ground to experiment, to give our faculty and our students the opportunity to look for different ways to gather information so that later on when we were eventually to reopen the clerkships, we had some kind of, you know, hands-on experience of what to do. Um, The other thing we did was leveraged our colleagues. Some of these, um, the neuro chats that Corey was talking about a second ago, we invited uh, these virtual visiting professors from, like she said, all over and tapping into their skill set. Many of them have had some telemedicine experiences and, and we all kind of united. It was a time to unite and really share information. And, and we even got a publication out of doing the neuro exam through telemedicine. So I think there, there were a lot of opportunities and I just love the camaraderie that came together, not only with my peers, but with our students who in a very short amount of time are going to be our peers. I mean, they're already, they're going to be in practice with us. Yeah. So, and 
for you, Dr. Salas, if I'm not mistaken, and this is only a kind of like gestalt for me, but neurology is one of the specialties that embrace telemedicine, um, I would say, earlier. Um, if, if the posters I saw, on, you know, passing ERs and things like that in the hospitals I've been in. Um, but why, why has telemedicine been um, a, something that neurology has been able to take on and, and how has it kind of changed, just curious, the, the specialty and its practice? Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. I think um, neurology really lends to a lot of visual. A lot of our exam really starts from the, the minute the patient walks into the room or doesn't walk into the room, right? The way they talk, um, the words they choose, um, you know, it, it, it really is a visual examination from the get-go. And, and, and so I think that really lent to us really embracing telemedicine years and years ago and for my colleagues in movement neurology and tele or in stroke, th those two particular fields or specialties were really um, able to really lend to telemedicine. And so, um, you know, once that happens, you start looking for specialists in neurology like myself or sleep. Again, you know, a lot of times it's all, you know, hearing the history, learning about the sleep environment, what kind of symptoms are, are, is the patient having while they're asleep? Many times they don't know. So we need that witness, right? So another visual interpretation there of what's going on. And um, the, the biggest reason I think too, is there's a shortage. We don't have enough neurologists to treat an aging population one in six Americans have a neurological disorder or disease. Do we have enough of us out there to really see all these patients? And the answer was no. So we knew early on we were going to, as a field, um, going to need to really embrace um, telemedicine so that we can provide more access to care. Got it. For either of you, I'm not sure uh, who, I guess I'll let Dr. Salas decide. Um, what's a yeah, I don't know if you can do this, but explain what a, a neuro exam looks like in audio when it's done over video. <laughs> um, like, what do you go through? A patient, um, you, I'm sure you interview them, you get the HPI, say, so do the past medical history, all the things we're accustomed to doing from uh, the subjective component of things. And then you get to um, that objective component of, of doctoring. Probably can't do vitals unless, well... Tell me, what's the kind of examination structure look like? Yeah, so so we can do some vitals, right? I mean, there's a lot of devices out there. So with technology, um, even even things that patients can get on their own, you know, pulse oximetry, you know, pedometers out there. There's some information that sure, maybe not all the devices out there are FDA approved and are technical, technically medical devices, but they do offer some information, a little bit of a glimpse of what's happening. Many patients have uh, blood pressure cuffs in their own home um, that they are pretty easy. So it, they can do that. Getting the patient's weight, especially in my clinic for um, sleep apnea, which is, you know, weight is a big risk factor. They could measure their neck size. A lot of times people have, you know, a measuring tape um, around the house. So it's really about also reframing how you're asking the patient to do what you need them to do so you can get the information. For instance, strength exam, right? That's something that really it's best in person. However, um, if you're trying to decide, is this a patient that needs to come in to seek emergent medical care um, in the emergency room or, or maybe not yet, you can, you can have them say, hey, from a seating 
a seated position, go ahead and, you know, put your, your arms across, you know, cross your arms and, and get up without using your hands or lift that jar of, uh, of corn that you have there. Lift that up a couple of times. Sounds like a real example. Exactly. <laughs> Using things around the house to get the information we need. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that ma- that makes sense, and I think it probably takes a, a being more nimble than than uh, usual. And I like what you said about you know sometimes seeing into their bedroom. Uh, my wife uh, is a psychiatrist, and she went to doing all telepsych um, when the pandemic hit, and. You know, she was like, wow, it's just so crazy for me to interview these patients over video because I see into their homes. And, you know, when you're studying in med school, you know, for instance, they'll talk about psychotic disorders or schizophrenia and, and this kind of picture in a vignette about somebody whose um, hygiene has gone down and they're not taking care of themselves. And you know, a friend comes into their house and they haven't cleaned it at all. And it's just total disarray like that's information that's that's useful that you would not otherwise get um, and I think probably the application of telemedicine um, will get us thinking about other clinical information that we can obtain um, that we ought to be obtaining and that can help inform our, our you know our clinical practice and care of uh, patients so fascinating uh, very fascinating all right so when, when it comes to teamwork, um, one of the points we wanted to, to address was uh, just teamwork and the importance of mentorship. Corey, can you speak to that a bit? Uh, absolutely. In regards to the Osler Apprentice Program, this has been such, an, such a beautiful journey, such an interesting journey for me as a student. Um, initially, I knew that this was for students who had an interest in um, medical education in developing a research project over the year um, in serving as peer mentors for students in the core clerkship. But there is a real art to mentoring. And I think that our team has this way of both teaching us very practical skills and by meeting with us and telling us exactly the different components of um, their roles as medical educators, but also giving us this space to really develop uh, ourselves, just giving us a lot of autonomy. And this has become especially apparent now with the COVID-19 pandemic, where a lot of things ended up changing. And the, uh, us as students, we were able to see the process by which um, medical education was changing and be a part of that process. And I'm grateful that uh, Dr. Salas and the rest of the team was willing to entrust Um, us to play a large role in developing new electives, in really coming up with new ideas, how we can really try to uh, unite medical students throughout the United States. We ended up developing a a new elective called the Virtual Clinical Elective in Equitable Healthcare. And uh, Dr. Salas was very happy to um, let us try to develop the schedule, the, the, the equitable healthcare schedule on our own really let us take um, initiative in contacting everyone, bringing everyone together, trying to figure out which speakers we should have, um, think about actively about how we were recruiting students, um, coming up with objectives for students and assignments. And uh, this was just such an amazing experience uh, in a time of growth for all of us 
as students, as a team. Um, and I think that uh, I hadn't expected to have this kind of opportunity. And this has just highlighted to me so much the importance of very careful and conscientious mentorship and giving students the chance to really get integrated with the, the system in many ways, not just in a clinical setting, but also in this medical education setting, really letting us take a glimpse at how everything's working and allow us to also try to put in our own ideas and work with the system, just how we're doing in a health system science way, thinking about it as a system and exactly what we want to change and improve. Wow, that's crazy. It sounds like they treated you like adults. <laughs> and like people who have, um, you know, usually some years of uh, graduate work already and uh, whose, whose friends are um, rising in middle management and uh, have mortgages <laughs> and have entered a more mature station of life. So I always tell my med students, I was like, remember, you're an adult. So you don't necessarily have to take that. Um, uh, so virtual patient rounds in neurology, is this an, an ongoing elective then? And you mentioned that there were about 350 total who went through it. Is it something anyone can sign up for or offered uh, globally? I'll take a, a stab at this. So right now we're kind of reassessing we're waiting you know with the with the this new surge that we're in and kind of like what changes are going to happen but i think if things are put on hold again uh we certainly will go and and we'll make it even better right and offer it and one of the things that we wanted to do with our elective was not only learn for ourselves right for our clerkship and offer our students something to do while they were at home um, so that they can continue their medical education. But, but I saw the need nationally and even globally to, for my colleagues at other institutions that weren't able to, you know, have this amazing team uh, to, to put all this together. So they were able to leverage components from our elective into the work that they were doing. So we, we were able to kind of fill gaps in, in other words, for each other. So I think that, um, we're kind of on standby at the moment, but ready to mobilize as soon as we need to. And, you know, Corey mentioned the equitable healthcare and elective that we did, which took us outside of neurology. It allowed us to get attention from our deans and allowed us to open up the institution to fourth year medical students who were about to apply to residency to really see um, our environment and, and get to meet some of our faculty and see the, the, you know, the interest and the dedication that we have to equitable healthcare for all, especially with everything going out, going on in the world. And so I think that that other, that elective will also be something that we're looking to, um, you know, continue, uh, for our students, because what we saw is that, you know, not every fourth year student, even if they wanted to come to Hopkins, maybe didn't have the means to do so, right? Or, or the funding to do so. So having it available virtually has opened some, some really nice doors. And that's something we're looking at to see. We're looking at our data right now in, in the Plan Do Study Act paradigm. We're looking at that data to see like, how are we going to move forward? And, and if we're going to move forward, how are we going to do it and make it better and make it more accessible? Uh, so a couple questions. Uh, we probably have another 10 minutes, if that's okay. We, one of the, the items that we uh, had noted to cover was the use of devices in research. Yeah, so medical devices are something that, you know, as a med student, I was like, I don't really, I'm not sure if I necessarily need to know that I'm not going to be developing a medical device, but boy, was I wrong. 
So medical devices, um, we for sure in research, right? If you want to study something and what's interesting is the definition of a medical device is actually more broad than you (laughs) would imagine, you know, and it's something that, that helps us, uh, evaluate, manage, or, or treat our patients. And so, um, anytime you're going to use a medical device, we have to go through the IRB process, right. To get permission to do our, our research. Um, so that's on the research side, but on the clinical side, I can give you a, an example, like our send, our sleep center started using an ambulatory EEG device to better, um, assess our patients with chronic insomnia, which is a subjective, you know, clinical diagnosis based on what the patient says. And so we thought, Hey, this device is FDA approved. It's ready to go. We can just start using it. And it's like, no, it's a medical device. It has to be cleared by clinical engineering. And here's the process for that. Then it has to go to um, the administrators to also get approved. And then how are you going to bill for that? What's the code? Who's eligible for it? And it's, it's, it was really a, a, a very clinical, not for research, very clinical um, situation I found myself in. And, and now I really get it, right? In med school, we talked about you know, we get clinical and, and basic science, but health system science is really how do we apply that information. And so this has really been eye-opening and, and, and something that I'm really um, aware of, especially when it comes to training the next, ener- you know, the next generation, making sure they see why they need to know this information. What about that? So medical devices, my, um, my wife has a little thing that uh, put your fingers on. It gives you like a, a single lead EKG. Um, the Apple Watch news series now does um, uh, an EKG that can uh, look for AFib. And all over, of course, there's disclaimers. This doesn't check for heart attacks. This basically, the only thing it does is look for AFib. And apparently, if your heart rate's over 120, it says, you should consider going to the hospital. So it's kind of like, what? But your your phone wouldn't be considered a medical device. Or even another example I could think is those um, home-based neurostimulators. Either of those things, I suppose, could have its role in care, um, delivering it on our part um, or getting information to make diagnoses. But uh, they wouldn't be considered medical devices. And why? And what does that mean that we can't use them, even though the person's Apple Watch says, you know, they're walking this many steps a day. So that helps us tell their uh, functional status or you know things of that nature. Yeah. So some of this is a little bit my personal opinion where, I mean, I think the devices out there, like the ones that are available to the general public are at least bringing more awareness to health. And in my case, there's a lot of devices out there when it comes to sleep, right? Yeah. And so it gets patients in the door to get evaluated. But do I rely on those devices as part of the documentation in making my diagnosis? No. But what I do use it for is to prompt me to order, you know, um, a standardized test that's part of, you know, the normal evaluation clinically. So if a patient comes in and says, here's my Fitbit, for example, and I haven't been going into REM sleep, and, and they have the risk factors for, for example, sleep apnea, I could, you know, further Im- investigate and then order um, a polysomnography to evaluate them for sleep apnea. 
So that's how I see the devices. I will say that during the pandemic, you know, the use of blood pressure cuffs and even pulse oximetry that people can get, and I have no stock, but in, on Amazon for like 30 bucks, yeah. you know, really could help and, and really did help to kind of fill a little bit of a gap and at least, you know, um, get some more information so that I can maybe make some better decisions again, because it was all through telemedicine. Yeah. All right. What about uh, final question? I think, uh, Corey, what is, what is a, a real life example of, of telemedicine that stands out to you? Well, I'm on my MPH right now, but <laughs> my previous experience with telemedicine was in um, just mainly with the neurology experience. And um, something that was interesting for me was after helping to develop the telemedicine, teleneurology physical exam. And after we had been teaching it to students in the core clerkship, there were some students who needed to practice uh, ahead of time before they were going to uh, interact with patients. And so I ended up being one of the test subjects and sitting on the other side and having the student kind of try to direct me into doing the different maneuvers was very illuminating and interesting just because it's, you see the limitations, you see that, okay, I, I'm not positioned the right way. You can see the students struggling and telling you to, to maneuver yourself differently, move back, you know, turn this way. If you, if you don't have somebody at home who's ready to help you, you have to on the spot think about how am I going to get them to do the movement I need or how am I going to get the information that I need just using the tools that I see around me. So there's a lot of adaptability that plays into this. Um, so that was, I think, very in insightful, just being part of that experience. And then afterwards, taking that to um, the virtual patient rounds in urology, where you see uh, established master clinicians who are also thinking about this, how exactly to be adaptable, how to get the information they need for their particular specialties through the telemedicine visits. So that was, that was very interesting. Well, fascinating uh, for both of you. I appreciate your time, and um, I'll I'll put links to uh, your social medias in the uh, um, show notes of this. And if anybody has any interests or questions about such things, um, they can tweet you. Well, my, mine's my name, Rachel Salas, MD. Mine is Corey Paradri. Oh yeah, I meant to ask you how to pronounce that. My last name is humongous. It's actually Parashniku Rodriguez. So, yeah, I had to shorten it. Yeah, I had a Romanian colleague in in residency, uh, uh, Mixunescu. Yeah, no, yeah, perfect. It's it's Romanian. Lots of U's in Romanian, huh? Yep. <laughs> All right. So, what's the Twitter handle? So maybe spell it out or yeah, Corey K O R I Paradri P O R O D R I. Got it. All right. Well, thank you both. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for everything, Dr. Beeman. Mm -hmm.